Welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so excited to be here with activist, crisis counselor, and content creator, Allison Fields. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, so nice to be here. So um, why don't you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Yeah, so I am from upstate New York in a town called Ithaca. Um, Everybody should visit there. Lots of waterfalls. Great escape from the city. Um, And I am 34 years old, turning 35 in a month. Um, And yeah, well, maybe. (laughs) And I have been living in New York City since 2008. So basically since I graduated from college. And I currently work in marketing communications, um, and I also am an activist, and I am a crisis counselor for RAIN's National Sexual Assault Hotline, um, Crisis Text Line. Um, And then I do a lot of just like work with other survivors, um, and especially focusing on anti-racism work and the intersection of anti-racism work and, you know, dismantling white supremacy and racism and sexism, so and misogyny. Amazing. Wait, does a month make you a Taurus still or a Gemini? Gemini. Nice. Do you identify with that? I've been told that it is very much me. <laughs> um, yes, I think that um, I probably have many, many personalities, uh, but I definitely can be the like strong out there up for anything person. And then definitely part of me is like loves to just hang out with my plants and curl up with a good book turn on some classical music. So if you want to call it two different people, we can. I kind of think it's just how I, how I self-care. <laughs> Amazing. So to anyone listening to this podcast um, for the first time this month, I have been sharing stories of survivors and allies throughout April because it is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um, and partnering with Exhale to Inhale, which is an amazing nonprofit organization Um, that has done some incredible advocacy work and um, sheds light on the ways in which that yoga, uh, specifically trauma-informed yoga, can be really um, healing for survivors of sexual assault and domestic abuse. Um, So for the last interview of the series, I feel really, really fortunate um, and honored to be speaking with you, Allison, about your experience. Um, So my, my question is, I guess, how... Were you affected by abuse and or sexual assault um, throughout your life? And how has this impacted you mentally and emotionally, um, you know, later on? Yeah, so I am a survivor of domestic violence. Um, I was in a abusive relationship in high school. Um, and I'm also a survivor of rape and sexual assault. Um, and I think that for me, it's been an ongoing process for sure. Um, I also had uh, some other things going on in childhood that um, have been my primary focus um, 
originally when it came to healing, um, I went through a lot of like psychological trauma um, with my family. And I think that that was kind of like the root cause of a lot of things. Um, but honestly, in 2015, I kind of felt like I no longer really had a choice. Um, it felt that people didn't understand how triggering outside events and like world and media and, you know, I'm specifically referencing Trump's campaign was for survivors. Um, I think that when people choose to vote someone into office that is a known misogynist and, you know, someone that is abusive and horrible towards women, it can really feel, even though if it's not the same experience that you've been through, it can really feel triggering and demoralizing um, and can really knock you off your stability. I mean, I, for one, um, after Trump was elected, I actually didn't leave my house for a month. Um, it was the most triggered I had felt since my actual assault. Um, and I think that what happened for me at least was I felt that I couldn't really be silent anymore. Um, I do have a good network of friends and I could lean on them, but I just realized that there were so many other people that were probably going through this type of thing and felt very alone. Um, similar to the Kavanaugh, um, I mean, like that was just like an awful, awful time period for a lot of people. And I think that um, what 2020 certainly has shown and, you know, part of 2021 so far is that, you know, compounded trauma is real and current events and media and, and you know, anything in the news can really impact people on the individual level. And um, so for me, part of kind of like my story and my journey is talking more about it because I think that um, I do have enough space um, at this point in my life and in this point in my journey to be able to share without it being really traumatizing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that by doing so, I hope that others under like know that it's okay if they're going through a lot and they need to take a break or um, they need space. Um, but sometimes I'm exhausted. I mean, I think that it's, <laughs> there are some, you know, there's some, yeah, there are some really hard days still. So I, I want to kind of go back because I just kind of, I just thought of something like, it's interesting you said, you know, just like because of things growing up, you, you like, had other things going on. Did it take you a while to kind of process the sexual assault and domestic abuse because of, like, for example, speaking just from personal experience, and I was actually just talking about this with my therapist the other day, like, this is, like, oversharing, so sorry, everyone listening, but I was talking about, like, romantic relationships for the first time in like my I don't know 10 years of being in therapy and I was like wow how have I literally never talked about this and I'm like oh right because like <laughs> I have so much other shit to deal with and like <laughs> a lot of it actually also is really is related to um you know unpacking my childhood and my family dynamics so like do you think because of things in your past it almost clouded all like other things in your life that then slowly built up more and more I mean obviously like Arabia is not something to take lightly but 
it's almost like a distraction from something even more painful or a different type of pain. Yeah, I mean, so for me, and I obviously do not speak for others who have undergone um, similar situations where they've um, overcome various types of abuse, um, but I was, you know, psychologically and emotionally abused um, basically my entire childhood. And for me, um, I can tell you without a doubt that being punched in the face was easier for me than the stuff that I like what you know my family was telling me um and I know that that sounds really awful but that is also something I've talked about in therapy and there's something for me at least like undergoing psychological trauma where it's over and over again especially as a child Mm -hmm. when you don't have an outlet and you don't know that what's happening to you is wrong um you know because I I'm from like what looks like you know a, a fairly stable normal family right on the on the outside um and I think that and especially when you're when you're being told that you're worthless and things like that as a as a young kid over and over and over again, that's kind of like your main your main point of of how you center yourself and how you see yourself. So I think when like additional things do happen, one, it doesn't necessarily feel as surprising that it happens to you. Um, and two, for me, like everything else, I felt like maybe I could understand might happen. And again, like to be clear, like it is never the victim's fault. Um, and I think that like is something that I still struggle with to be totally honest. Like I I know that it, like the, like when I was raped, that was not my fault. And I can say that. And, you know, as a, as a counselor, like I, I say these things all the time and I'm not the only person that also has had a lot of like self-blame. And I think that, you know, to, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, like the media is very much at fault and like lack mm-hmm. of education is very much at fault. Like even when you, see shows like, you know, Law and Order SVU, the way they portray survivors and like those who are deserving and those who are not, the way, um, I mean, there was that recent case, I want to say it was in Minnesota and it probably wasn't, maybe it was Minneapolis, but like where they basically said that um, a woman who drinks, um, they, uh, someone can't be charged with rape because she was drinking. Um, so it has to be a lesser violation and a Supreme Court justice. And again, sorry, I can't remember the city. And that was ruled a few weeks ago and I didn't hear anybody talking about it. But all of these things, right, can be um, just like so problematic on people's on people's journeys. But yes, I do think that maybe I lessered um, some of the experiences of trauma because in some ways they were one-offs. Um, and even though now all of that stuff is all mixed and muddled, right? <laughs> At this point, yeah. um, it's it it was, but for me, it was crucial to like figure out my foundation, which kind of I lost as a child first, and then kind of grapple with with everything else. So I think by like mid twenties to like you know, I guess like late twenties, it was primarily focused on like family and. And me as a child and I'm still working on that and then I think like in my 30s and again like partially just because of political events right I kind mm-hmm. of I felt like I had to shift yeah oh that's so interesting and I mean incredibly uh, incredibly difficult to do while you're also you know through advocacy taking on so much emotional toll of others um but like damn like power to you that's incredibly strong um so kind of shifting gears a little bit um but also in the same realm of 
you know, current events specifically. I mean, I guess more recently, but un- like, unfortunately, only more recently has light been shed on it. Um, we spoke earlier this week, um, and you mentioned that you were one of the first people, I think, in New York to report a hate crime against the AAPI community back in March of 2020. Correct me if I'm wrong in those in those dates. Um, so my question is, how has your identity as an Asian Jewish woman impacted your life, um, you know, during childhood, adolescence, et cetera? And then how have you, you know, seen personally the, the violence against um, the AAPI, AIPI community increase over the last year? Yeah, so I think as a transracial adoptee, um, meaning like someone who was adopted, like, you know, someone who's adopted from one race into another, so into a white Jewish family, um, I didn't figure a lot of this stuff out until later in terms of um, intersectionality. When I was a kid, um, you know, my parents did a good job at kind of explaining that I was adopted, but I was I never questioned that I was part of the family. It was really other people who would ask me like, is it weird that you don't look like anybody in your family or in these pictures? And I don't know, like, that's what my family looked like. So to me, that's what a family looked like. I didn't, I was like, is it weird that all of your siblings are blonde? Like I have, <laughs> I felt like a really stupid question when I was five, to be totally honest. Uh, and then I would like go home and ask my mom, like, is it weird? I don't look like you guys. And she was like, do you think it's weird? And I was like, no. Um, and I think that that's great. But to be totally honest, I think what was missed is like the fact that I was going to be constantly questioned. Right. Um, I, um, very much felt from a young age that if I was really religious, um, we grew up in a conservative Jewish home, um, and I would say that I was more religious than my family at that point, that um, like I had my family go kosher for a while, um, and I thought that that would really kind of like um, cement my identity with my family, that if I was this really good Jew, then like I would be somehow closer to my family and its roots and its history. Um, You know, my family is immigrants from Poland and Russia and they came over during the war. We changed our last names. Um, Like, you know, I used to be a Finkelstein and like now we're fields and like all of these things. And I thought that, and I remember once I told my cousins I wanted to change my last name back to Finkelstein because honestly, Allison Fields could be anything. Like I was given this like very generic name um, and they were like, no, you, you can't go back to that name because it's like, there's like trauma associated with that name for them in their history but I just wanted to find those roots um and then in terms of like my Korean identity um you know I did definitely I was immersed in Korean culture to some extent through my family meaning like different foods and things like that but um and I actually learned some Korean when I was younger but what I think happens is that like if you're being raised by white folks um even if they're around other people of color or anything like that, I don't think they are ever going to understand just the daily interactions that someone who walks around as a person of color and specifically a woman of color experiences. And I mean, from a very young age, I was constantly told I didn't belong in different spaces, right? Like if I tried to go to things that were Jewish related, be it like getting on like a camp bus or anything like that. I was told that like I was in the wrong place. Or if um, I remember I was like trying to join the Jewish student union um, in college and someone was like, oh, the Korean church is like down the, down the street. And it was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to the, 
like Korean church. Um, but I also didn't really feel accepted in Asian spaces. Um, and this very much might've been my own mental block and my own internalized racism and like all of these things, but I felt like they didn't understand me. And then a lot of these like experiences that I, that I had, which I can go into, I honestly thought they were because I was a woman. So like, you know, when people cat call you or for me, like people shout out, Hey Asia all the time. And I have been chased down the street. I have been, I mean, people just say wild stuff to you, but I kind of thought, okay, well, all women experience some sort of sexual aggression or sexual harassment. So this is normal. And nobody was saying that it was bad, right? Like when people made jokes about having yellow fever or like people being really into Asian chicks, like I think that honestly, I think some white women were jealous because like I was exotic and people were like into a type. And I think that when nobody is really acknowledging how, can I swear on this? Oh yeah, absolutely. How fucked up it is to be seen as a, as a type, right. In a bucket instead of as a person, like when nobody calls that out for years and years and years, you just start thinking that that's just part of, of, of existing as a woman. And I just thought that that was the thing they were calling out in my womanhood, um, is that I also was Asian. Um, and I think that, um, you know, what happened in March, 2020 was I went to a grocery store and it was like the grocery store below my apartment. Um, and I was like in my pajamas, New York city was about to go into lockdown. And like, I really needed some cherry tomatoes. And this is just like, it's my favorite food. And I just wanted tomatoes. I had like done my big shop and like, all I wanted was tomatoes. I was like in between work meetings. And so my whole point is that like, you know, this is like, to me, my, that grocery store was like an extension of my apartment, right? I'd lived in that building for eight years. Like it was just, I don't know. So, and I walk into the grocery store and this guy just started screaming at me and he called me a disgusting fucking animal. And he told me to get the fuck out of the store and to get the fuck out of the country. And no, nobody said, I mean, first of all, nobody said anything, nobody did anything. And then he just followed me around the store screaming at me. Um, And so it wasn't violent, you know, and I'm not trying to draw comparison here, obviously, to some of the horrific things that have happened to AAPI communities, and especially AAPI elders. But it was, it was, it was very aggressive. And I was scared for myself. Um, And also, to be totally honest, being chased around a store is just not fun. Um, and I've been called a lot of things and I've been objectified before, but I, at least personally have never been called an animal before. Um, and that really just, I don't know, it really, it was very hard for me. Um, and I recognize that the, you know, the oppression and the daily racism that black and brown folks experience in this country is far, far worse. But for me, it's like, honestly, most of the racism that I've experienced has been objectification and in a sexual manner. Um, Mm -hmm. I have not actually experienced that much racism directly, just like, just like that. And I think for me, it was a little bit, it's like, I mean, it sounds horrible when you're basically used to being attacked for certain types of things, your brain and your body kind of just figure out how to deal with it. And so then when you're attacked for like, just like right just existing and and it was a it was a very different experience for me and like what was really disappointing to me was after that experience when I shared it 
um, I noticed that all of my friends were trying to qualify it. And, you know, they were saying like, was he homeless? Um, like, was he mentally ill? Like, was he something? And it's just like, I think that my number one term from 2020 is racial gaslighting. I think that, um, and, and to me, there's such a parallel between racial gaslighting and what we do to survivors of sexual violence, right? By like asking people to, um, why, like, why are we asking survivors of these, of these experiences to, to qualify what happened to them, to have to explain it? And then I think that this is why people don't report, right? And I'm talking about both like hate crimes and like, you know, crimes of like sexual violence crimes, because I think that there's constantly like, am I going to be believed? And because other folks may never experience these things, there's this like incredulity that happens, right? They're like, like I live on the Upper East Side and people were like, well, it's a nice neighborhood. So like, I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't because you were Asian. And it's like, I can't tell you how insulting it is to have people who love you ask you to like, are you sure? And the same thing like pre that, people had already stopped like sitting next to me on the subway. Um, and then I stopped taking the subway because I was like, this feels so dehumanizing that it's like people, you know, and like a hundred percent was because our president at the time was calling it the Kung flu. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that um, Atlanta was really difficult. I think that it was, I think one of the things that I felt and I still feel is like, again, not centering myself in that narrative, but like my hate crime was a year prior and people have been undergoing um, verbal assaults and violent attacks this whole year. And sometimes it feels like, um, like what's the threshold? What's the threshold of pain? What's the threshold of the number of people? What's like the way it's filmed or the way we find out that people start giving a shit? Um, and that's similar to how I felt about George Floyd. He is not the first person to be murdered by the police in America. And I really asked a lot of my friends to think critically why all of a sudden they were paying attention. And it was because, yeah. you know, and I think that it's very, very frustrating for, um, you know, for definitely for black and brown folks, and I think for survivors, and I think for, you know, some Asian folks at this point as well, when like, you're constantly telling people about certain experiences, and nobody steps up, and then something so huge happens, and people finally pay attention. But it's like, why is that the thing when it's been happening over and over again? And like, that's why I feel like we need to talk about like microaggressions, or fetishization, and all of these things, because like, First of all, they're traumatic to the person they go through that's experiencing them, right? And also, like, it adds up. And if you can't draw the line between, like, what happened to me in the grocery store and what happened to Atlanta, then, like, you're not paying attention, right? Because um, anytime that, like, we're basically, like, letting people objectify or dehumanize others, um, we're drawing a direct line to violence. And I think that people still aren't seeing that. People still aren't seeing that like the small microaggressions at work, right? The comments, the like letting the rape joke slide, um, all of these things that like, that's where they need to be stopped because otherwise it, I really do feel like we're basically licensing people to do whatever the fuck they want because clearly like nobody is telling them this shit is wrong. Absolutely. Like, 
I mean, so much of what you said is like so true and so powerful. Like for one thing, there's a, I think there's a huge difference between, you know, talking about what you said earlier with your white friends being like jealous because they had like an exotic type. Like, no, there's a very big difference between like, oh, I like tall, dark and handsome men and like a fetishization of a specific group. And as you said, kind of like the racial gaslighting and, and not only does that make you have to re-experience what you went through multiple times by explaining it over and over and over, but then also to be like just not believed or for someone to find an excuse as to why there's no validity in your statement is like, it really, it, it's like almost, it's, it's interesting, especially in your scenario, because, you know, you said you grew up like kind of not feeling believed to be a part of any specific community. And then it's like that translating to into your adulthood of being like not believed to to have experienced something or experienced the way that you actually did. It's like a whole life of just mis like confusion really. And, and not having like a stable, like foundation to that people like look at you and recognizing you and believe you, which is can then, you know, is a, I imagine a huge part of like the basis that the trauma is compounded on. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I mean, I will say again, like gaslighting is just my favorite word. Uh, yeah. just really I like recently, I learned it like what it meant way too late, but it, it yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So gaslighting is my favorite word. And I think that um, you know, one of the things I was reading recently was about how, like, even adoptive parents can gaslight their children um, of different races because, like, I, for one, you know, I had people pull eyes at me and do all of these things when I was younger, and people, like, people in my family and other adults would be like, "Oh, they're just flirting with you," right? Because there's this also there's this all like whole thing about how like when boys are mean to you or they're paying you unwanted attention that like it's okay because like they're flirting with you and like I have a very big problem with that as well um but I think when like people constantly minimize your experiences you start to minimize them yourself um and it took me a really long time to find a community of folks in my life who um unfortunately had been through similar experiences to finally feel really validated and um I it you know, I think that especially like when I at first like growing up in, you know, upstate New York, it was a fairly white town um, and, you know, having just a lot of white folks around me and it wasn't until college and kind of finding different communities where I finally felt understood and that like these things were, um, yes, it was normalized still in these communities, right? That this stuff just happens to you, but um, it was a lot of honestly like black and brown folks who like called out bad behavior on my behalf, like when people would say racist shit to me that I kind of had just decided was okay. Like people telling me like, oh, you must be really good at nails or like, oh, I forget that you're Asian. 
And I just thought this stuff was normal. And I still remember I was like driving to DC with my friend and she's from Trinidad. And I was like talking about how one of my like good friends had just like always said that she forgot that she was like, that I was Asian. And she like slammed on the brakes that she was like, no, like that is not okay. And I truly didn't understand why at that point. Um, because I think that I very much tried to like hide the fact that I was Asian and like, as best as I could and like I've realized as an adult and I'm very sad for my younger self that like one irony of irony is like I literally cannot hide that I'm Asian um it is like what I look like to everybody else it's not something that I can like secret away right it is a very visible part of my identity um but I'm also sad for my younger self for like trying so hard to figure out ways to be other things so that like my Asianness was was like less right um and and I'm and I don't think I'm alone in trying to do that yeah no that's so interesting of what you said like I mean granted this is very different but the whole like I mean I also clearly remember my my parents when I was like severely bullied in middle school being like well it's you're exotic like blah 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 and Yes, now, like, I, I like, like the fact that I don't look like everyone from my, like, very yuppie town in that, like, I'm Greek, but, like, when you're little and being told that, like, you know, this is, you're, like, you know, you're just being made fun of, like, granted, it's stupid middle school, like, just bullying, but it, then being told like, oh, that's, they're just, yeah, like flirt, flirting with you or no, you're beautiful. Like it's because you're exotic and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, but like, at least give me some empathy too right now. Like, you know, that's like, I think what the miscommunication is of like, still not cool to bully because again, like when that happens when you're little, that just translates into just the atrocities that are happening that more often than not, I'm not going to like make generalizations, but men do to women. So yeah, I, I think that's so spot on. And I, I'm also really curious because you said, you know, you focus a lot of a lot, blah, sorry, focus a lot on intersectionality. Do you, do you ever feel like because, you know, I think in, a, in many ways, the media usually depicts rape as violence against a, like, innocent blonde woman. Whereas stories of, of sexual violence against people of color is just not, there's not enough light shed on it, at least in my opinion. Is that something that, you know, you have found through your advocacy work? Like, or is it like, I guess where, not where can the blame be put, but like, what is that? Do you think, do you think a result of? Um, so I talked about a, this a little bit in that article that I wrote for America Hates Us. Um, but I think this goes back to 
honestly, to chattel slavery, right? White women were always looked at as being pure and innocent and all of these things. Um, and black and brown folks were considered to be, if they were looked at as being like bad or lustful or sinful, then it gave people like valid reasons in their minds because they were already oppressing their bodies through slavery, right? To also oppress them through sexual violence. Um, I mean, if you look at statistics now, and I don't have the exact numbers, but like, for example, indigenous people, um, the rates of sexual violence, I think are like eight times higher than for other folks. And then when you look at black trans women, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the violence there is, is absolutely horrific. Um, so I think that we have been given through systemic oppression, um through then how media has then carried that narrative forward we constantly constantly make folks from marginalized communities um make it okay to hurt us um and i do really think that that is rooted in white supremacy um and it's and it's not that white folks don't hurt other white folks right that's not you know that's not what i'm saying but i think that it is often easier for people to dismiss when it's happening to people that are in their minds other. Um, and I know you and I talked about Hood Feminism being an incredible book and I strongly recommend everybody to read it. But so I, I, like Mickey Kendall definitely talks about this, how in Hollywood, right? When someone is hurting black folks, right? If they're like assaulting black women, a lot of times white women then also protect whoever the white man is that is per perpetrating the, the things. But then when that person then transitions to also assaulting white women, then there's this public outcry when really it's like, why the fuck are you not standing up when a black woman is being hurt? And like, why are people not talking about it when marginalized communities are hurt? And I think people constantly see themselves as like, well, it's not me and it's not my problem. But like, truly, if you're, if you consider yourself a feminist, if you're not, acting and thinking and advocating in an inter intersectional way, you're not a fucking feminist, right? Yeah. And like, I, like, I, you know, I was labeled a feminist before I labeled myself a feminist because I didn't, I thought I was a humanist. I thought I just really, really felt that everybody should have equal access to resources and be treated fairly. Um, and people kept telling me I was a feminist and I couldn't figure out for so long why I didn't want to be called a feminist. And I realized it's because white feminism <laughs> is incredibly oppressive. And I think that when we we talk about, um, you know, believing survivors and all these things, it's like we, it's respectability politics comes into play, right? Like if you fit a certain mold and you look a certain way, then you will be believed. If your parents have money, right? Like then you'll be believed. And like, whereas for a lot of folks like who are undergoing trauma, whether it's in their own homes, um, whether it's from strangers, We'll, we're not believed because of our situation or we're blamed for it or we're told that like we have like misconstrued something or we were asking for it and like also like the systems themselves like the police right are also oppressive I mean I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard of not just police not doing their jobs but of them harming victims that are coming in to report um or sending them away and then having like other terrible things happen to either themselves or to other people. And then finally, when it happens to, again, a respectable person, quote unquote, right, then they take action. Yeah. Um, and that's absolute bullshit because it just basically means that we think that some people 
are more valuable than others. And that's why I said, like, that's why I tried to draw back to, to slavery because like, you can't really, you can't really talk about one thing without the other, right? We've, we've come like commodified and objectified certain groups of people for so long um, that somehow it is so ingrained in some people that like there, there are levels, right? There's levels of purity, there's level of acceptability, there's like levels of responsibility. Um, and so I think that for folks like myself and others who live at the cross-section of multiple identities, um, stuff can be really difficult, right? Because it's just like, what? <laughs> we're already navigating, like I navigate being a woman, right? We're like, I'm gonna get objectified for being a woman. And then on top of that, I am an Asian woman. So people see me as meek and submissive. And so they chase me down the street, right? And like white folks, I mean, I have never seen a white woman get chased down the street for five blocks with guys running after her being like, hey, my friend really likes Asian people. Like he just wants your number. Like I'm fucking running down the street in five inch heels. Do you really think that I'm interested? And also I'm running away from you. Yeah. What part of that is saying, yes, please continue to chase me, you know? Um, but also in these situations that I outlined in the article for America Hates Us and that like I've talked about in other places, like nobody steps in. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if they think they're watching a game. Like I'm not totally sure because if I saw a woman <laughs> running down the street saying, go away, I would try to intervene. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't yeah. know. Um, but again, like, I don't know if some people see me as a person. I don't know if some people see, you know, and I think that like, I don't like, I don't like clearly some people think that certain violence is acceptable to certain people, which it absolutely is not. But like, it's hard to understand it in any other way. Yeah. And I think what you said, and I'm, I think this is from Robin D'Angelo's book, but I'm not entirely sure, but at the end of the day, it's, I, I'm like pretty sure it is. And if it's not, then I'm sorry. Um, but you know, I, I, she made this parallel to when women, but like really white women got the right to vote back in the fifties. I don't know. Like the power was in the hands of white men. So really in order for any change to happen, white men had to step up and make change. And fast forward way too many years, it's like, again, the, the power is in like as much advocacy and like a person of color can do at the end of the day, the power is still in the hands of white women, but women, but let me get sadly still more so white men, but white women as well. So it's like, the fact that, yeah, no one intervened and like, granted, I do think that's a, a partially because it's New York and everyone has their blinders on, which is a whole thing in itself. But that's why the importance that like, that's why out al like allyship and, and holding your white friends accountable is so important because no change will be made unless someone who can make the change does it because yeah. voices are silenced. And I think um, I tend to not use the word allyship. Um, there's a great book called The Black Friend on Being a Better White Person by Frederick Joseph. Um, and he talks about 
moving from allyship to being an accomplice. And I think that that's a really good way to think about it. Cause I think a lot of people, I, I would say a lot of people that like put the black squares and like did a couple of things, like they consider themselves allies, but accomplices are the people that are like the ones that are actually willing to step up and intervene and say something when, when harm is being done. Um, and I would also just like to like add that, like, you know, I think that, you know, cause we are talking about survivors, right. That like, Yes, I think that white women can be oppressed, but they also can be the oppressors. Yeah. And I think one of the like fundamental issues there is that they see, they do experience oppression. And, I, and I'm not saying that they don't, but I think, you know, when you look at even like Emmett Till, right? Like historically white women, and you look at more recent, you know, examples of Karenism, right? Like Amy Cooper, like they, they 100% know how to be the oppressors. Um, and I think that that's where I think, you know, talk, like it just gets complicated. But I hope that, um, you know, and a lot of white women definitely say like, you know, like I'll get, let me get my foot in the door, then I'll help you get your foot in the door. And then they don't, right? They move up into leadership positions or into politics or whatever, but they are not bringing other people along. And the full on irony of that is that they were normally not the original leaders of the movements, yeah. like feminists, like all of these movements started with, with, with black women and, and to, to, and then they get, you know, discarded and it's just, it's unacceptable. But I think that, um, you know, I think that intersection, understanding intersectionality and understanding and being accountable for your actions and holding others accountable um, and really stepping up are ways that we can create safer spaces for folks, especially in years like now where like the trauma just doesn't stop, right? You have like the underlying grief and isolation that everybody is experiencing from COVID um, and from, and, you know, from like not having our routines and maybe our support. And then you add in the compounded trauma of the absolute horrific violence that's happening to black folks in the past year. And then, you know, for Asian communities, everything that's been going on since COVID and like a lot of people are really, really fucking tired. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yet we're still expected to show up at work and, you know, work nine to five and like do all of these things when we're constantly just, I feel like, I mean, personally, I feel like I'm being like knocked over every day by the news. Yeah. Um, let alone that something like Atlanta is triggering as a survivor of sexual violence, right? So it's kind of just like, I don't know, I think like understanding that people are going through a lot and to kind of just like validate that like, like it's okay, like it's okay to take breaks and it's okay to like step away when you need to. And I think that especially white folks like need to be more like offering those spaces more readily. Like a lot of people aren't going to ask for them, but it would be nice if people started offering them. And I think that like, you know, tie it back to like the whole original thread from this from this conversation is like, that's part of being in a trauma-informed space, right? Yep. Um, giving people those options. That, that was my next question. So the theme of this week of ETI's um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month campaign, I'm not really sure the correct terminology is, why should all spaces be trauma-informed? So how would you answer that question? Uh, well, 
<laughs> so many answers. No, yeah. but like in all seriousness, as someone who looks one way, right? I like my visible identities are of one way and my invisible identities as like a trauma survivor, as someone with CPTSD um, and like all of these other things, right? Um, as a Jew, right? I don't even know if people understand like that like seeing six MWE shirts was fucking terrifying for me because like then people remember my other identities, right? Um, but as someone who has lived through a lot, been through a lot and deals with a lot, I would say that like, I am very well aware that so many others are also navigating complex trauma, complex anything else, right? Like just being a mom is hard. And then being a mom in a pandemic is, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, huge props. To <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to, you know, that's just, um, but I think that like, we have to acknowledge that everybody has shit. And I think that there, there's been this whole idea for a really long time of like leaving your personal stuff at home, right? And like you have your professional self and you have all these selves. And for me, that always made no sense because like my best self is going to be my best self at work and it's going to be my best self as a human, as a counselor, as a friend. And to divorce those identities to me, I, I just, I'm not good at it, first of all. But I think the pandemic honestly brought up that like now most people who may have chosen to do so can't, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you just can't. Um, and I think that trauma-informed spaces are just so important because it's how to be a better person, right? It's like you create spaces that feel safer for others by respecting that other people might be going through stuff. And then you, you know, do things like using mindful language or offering people choices, right? Like I said, like, I think that if you are a manager right now, and especially if you're managing, um, you know, BIPOC folks or anybody that's going through something, it's like offer them options and don't just like assume nope, that unless yeah. they say something, you're okay. Um, and I'm not saying you have to go around asking everybody how they are and what you can do for them. That's like, might not be your space, but I think like an invitation to talk, an offer to rest, an offer or a reminder, for example, that like a deadline isn't like, you know, a true deadline, right? Like if you normally are like, oh my God, I have to get all this stuff done by Friday. Even if like, you know, as a manager, you're like, it's okay to do this next week. I think all of those things can kind of create spaces that feel a little bit more held. And then I think, you know, as you walk through, as you navigate all these different areas in your life, right? Like I know I'm specifically talking about work, but like really anywhere else, I think that we do have to be really mindful of the language we use. Um, and I think that's like, the, like words have impact and we've seen this over and over and over again. And so I guess when I think about trauma in front spaces, I think about people who are mindful of, of how they talk to others right and like don't make assumptions about other people like you just don't know you only know what you can see right mm -hmm. and that's making a lot a lot of assumptions yeah exactly like it reminds me of my absolute favorite quote which is everyone you meet is going through a battle that you know absolutely nothing about be kind always and I think it lends itself well to the theme of just you really don't know anyone's story so whether it's something you verbally say, whether it's something you think, just like take a step to second to pause and think like, why am I putting energy towards any sort of predisposed assumption or about this human? Like, because at the end of the day, 
like not only even before the pandemic, we never know what the, the about the shit people are going through, but especially after this clusterfuck of a year, like give people space, like, like let people live. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think people, you know, we can hold grief and joy simultaneously. We can hold fear and anger and numbness simultaneously. But, and I think that all of us have done are, are very capable of, of holding all of those emotions and, and triggers and, and whatever is going on for us and still existing. But I think that we really need to move past people just existing to, to really joyfully like embracing like all parts of life and I think part of that is creating trauma-informed spaces because I think that if we continue to create spaces that are oppressive um people can't thrive we can just do our very best you know given like our whatever circumstances but if we can create spaces that offer support and are mindful of other people I think it gives people a, a chance to really to really come in with their bell self and grow and, and feel safe. And I, and I recognize that most spaces won't be that, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean we can't, can't work towards it. Definitely. So I always wrap up with a few questions. I always say unrelated to the conversation, but there's always, you know, some intersection. Um, the first question is, what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Everything. I know that's not, a, it's probably not, but like everything that happens to me makes me a stronger person. Um, I really, but what I will also say is therapy helps a lot. Yes. Um, therapy has helped me identify my strengths and validate a lot of my feelings. Um, but I have been an adult for a very long time, like since childhood. And I think that I have really I've only recently been able to honor like the strength that I had as a child. And I think that that's helping me immensely, especially in the past year. I love that. And yes, shout out to therapy. It's the best. (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? I do not. Um, But I will just say, because I just read the book, The Body is Not an Apology. I've Um, not read that, but... It's on my list. <laughs> fucking amazing. So I would just, if I could quote a book, just quote that <laughs> entire book. Uh, it is, it's an, it's an incredible book. Um, and it's about the power of radical self-love. Love that. What do you love most about yourself? Hmm. Interesting question for someone that has poor self-confidence. Um, <laughs> That's like literally everyone I interview on my podcast, like the rare person who's like, like, oh, don't love that question. Let me lay, like, let me like read off five. There's like maybe two people I've interviewed. Most people are like, ah, oh, I hate this question. Like, I need um, to ask it. <laughs> I would say recently I love that I'm willing to take risks. You know, I wrote that first article. Um, I really in 2020, I live alone. I've been very isolated and I started kind of just like finding communities online. And I found some really amazing folks that, um, I just feel so held, held by who I feel like see me as I am, even though I've never met them in person. And a lot of that has been through the America hates us family. Um, and so I guess just like, I think bravery, right. Just like being willing to show my full self at all times, uh, for better or worse. And, and honestly, it has normally turned out for better, right. That like, 
I show up authentically as I am and I do not give many fucks anymore. The older I get, the fewer fucks I give. And um, I really try to own my whole self, like all of it, right? The trauma, the good things, the bad things. And I think that that's a hard thing to do. And I think that, um, yeah, so I would say bravery. Amazing. And last question, which is the name of the podcast is how do you find solace in the city? Plants. (laughs) I'm just going to send you a picture of my plants so you can post it on Instagram. Um, I can like show these. Well, it might be blurry, but these are not Um, my plants. I became a plant mom a few years ago and I have more and more plants. Um, So literally yesterday, you know, it was like a beautiful New York City day. I put all my plants on my fire escape and I watered them. And definitely all my neighbors were like, what is this child doing? Um, But that is like my joy. And honestly, just I am a huge bookworm. So I love if it's nice out, you know, going to Central Park, I consider Central Park my backyard, going and reading a book there or just like curling up on the couch with my plants and, and a good book. Amazing. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I have absolutely like loved our conversation again, even after our call, where can everyone find you, support you? I'm going to link your blog to the um, show notes. And um, I know you have a book club, which I will definitely be joining, like plug everything. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure you'll tag me on Instagram. That's where you can find me. My Instagram handle is it's allison.af, which is confusing to people because it's as part of it. So we'll just type it out for y'all. Um, I run a book club every month through America Hates Us. We read um, books from BIPOC authors only. Um, right now we're focusing on a lot of activism books. So we read The Black Friend um, and the author joined us, which was amazing. This month we're reading The Body is Not an Apology. Next month we're reading Hood Feminism. Ooh. So queue up, everybody should join. Um, it's a really great space of people who are looking to be actively anti-racist and reading from diverse authors. We have a really good book lineup. Um, I facilitate the whole thing. I like send out questions in advance and it's just, I don't know any of the people, but it's just a really fun space. Um, I write articles for America Hates Us. Definitely recommend following them. They have great merchandise and also bring great merchandise. Please go check them out. And also, you know, they have a Patreon and that supports primarily Black Femmes who are also, who are creators. Um, And you know, I think that one other thing that I'll just leave with is um, if you said, if you see anybody struggling um, and you're not sure how to help them, just offer people resources. Um, you know, I'm a crisis counselor for RAIN and for Crisis Text Line. Um, and I just think that it's good for maybe for folks who don't know how to support someone, like say, let's say someone tells you that they are a victim of sexual assault or anything like that, um, you as a friend of someone who's supporting someone can also reach out for help and get resources. So um, never hesitate to ask for the help that you need. Um, But yeah, find me on Insta. (laughs) Amazing. I will also link all of those resources. Uh, Allison, you are amazing. And thank you everyone listening. Thank you. Thank you.